This is a special edition of the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder, recorded in December 2016 at RMI's ELAB Annual Summit in Austin, Texas. American coal, nuclear energy, natural gas, hydro, solar power, wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can yeah. still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. Welcome to the Energy Transition Show. I'm your host, Chris Nelder. This is a special free bonus episode of the Energy Transition Show, brought to you in collaboration with Rocky Mountain Institute, or RMI, a clean energy think-and-do tank based in Colorado. One of RMI's initiatives is its Electricity Innovation Lab, or ELAB, an assembly of thought leaders and decision makers from across the U.S. electricity sector. ELAB focuses on collaborative innovation to address critical institutional, regulatory, business, economic, and technical barriers to economic deployment of distributed resources in the U.S. electricity sector. This is one of seven interviews I recorded with electricity sector experts in December 2016 in Austin, Texas, at the ELAB Annual Summit. The summit is a convening of electricity industry stakeholders, including state, federal, and local governments, utilities, regulatory agencies, renewables and DER companies, financiers, advocates, customers, and philanthropists that aims to advance the electricity system transformation toward a cleaner, more distributed, and more resilient grid for the 21st century and beyond. I'd like to thank RMI and ELAB for hosting this wonderful event in Austin and for inviting the Energy Transition Show to cover the event, which offered a unique opportunity to connect with these leaders in the electricity industry. So, on with the show. Our guest in this interview is Jonathan Levy, Director of Policy and Strategy at Vision Ridge Partners, an investment firm focused on addressing the threat of climate change. Welcome, Jonathan, to the Energy Transition Show. Thanks, Chris. Very glad to be here. All right. So as part of its focus on climate change, energy transition is very much a core part of the Vision Ridge investment agenda. Earlier this year, Vision Ridge made a major investment in EVGO, which owns a network of 665 fast chargers in more than 50 top metropolitan markets across the U.S. As a leading provider of fast chargers, I'm sure you'd like to see a charger market at least remain open to companies like EVGO, but there's also a rather fraught debate happening right now in various states across the country about whether utilities should even be allowed to own charging infrastructure and whether their cost of capital, regulated returns in some cases, and their existing relationships with customers of every kind, their market position, and so on, actually gives them an unfair advantage over companies like EVgo. So, what are your thoughts about that? Do you think the EV charging sector should be off limits to utilities? Great question, Chris. And first of all, just to take a quick step back on Vision Ridge, EVgo is one of our investments. It's one of our more sizable investments. But we have a $430 million sustainable asset fund investing across a series of sectors where the commonality is we think there are opportunities to make excellent returns because first and foremost, we're not a charity. We're a financial firm, so sure. we have to make money. 
And secondly, that there will be a positive environmental impact. If it doesn't have a good outcome for the environment, for the climate, we're not interested in investing in it. Okay. And so EV charging we see as a huge opportunity. There's about a half a million EVs on the road in the U.S. today. We think we're on a trajectory to hit two million in the next couple of years and well beyond that to ubiquity. We think that the EV charging business is a great opportunity to accelerate that, benefit from that, make both a financial impact and an environmental impact. To the core of your question, the EVgo network is now more than 850 fast chargers across 50 markets, makes it the largest public fast charging network in the U.S. for EVs. And utilities actually are key partners. So whether it's helping with the trenching, with the rate structures, all those things, there are a number of stakeholders in the electric vehicle business, the charger companies, the utilities themselves, the automakers, policymakers. There's a number of people that are involved. And just from the first principle basis, All of us have to have this concept of making charging easy, affordable, and ubiquitous has to be a shared goal because any bad charging event, one single one, is bad for everyone, Hmm. right? So that being said, you know, when I was in government still, the policymaker impression had been that there had been some massive market failure and that EV chargers weren't being built out Mm -hmm. when really part of it has been the cars weren't there yet. We're finally now seeing extended range vehicles. We're seeing this push, whether it's the Tesla Model 3 or the Bolt, to cheaper, more affordable extended range vehicles. And the action has really ramped up in recent years. Of the total installed fast charging ports in the U.S., more than 35% of them have been installed since January of 2015. Hmm. So it really is this game change. So now to your question, right? Not to be, you know, I know I live in Washington. I'm trying not to be a politician <laughs> and avoid your question, but I think that's important for Yeah, no, that's good context, yeah. Uh, but the utility role is all over the map. There are some utilities that are trying to actually own the charger. And as you said, there hasn't been an argument made, sometimes by public utility commissions, sometimes by private sector participants, that that gives them an unfair advantage. Mm-hmm. Our view has been, and EVGO's view and a number of participants in the charging sector, has been they should not own the charger. And that's actually consistent with what we've seen in the Kansas City Power and Light ruling from that rate-making case and from even the PG&E ruling recently of, you know, there are some instances where the utility should own a level two charger, for instance, in an underserved low to median income community. But generally speaking, the private sector is, as we said, starting to fill this, and it's an accelerating and growing market, and utilities shouldn't stifle that. But there are key areas of collaboration, whether it's the fact that some utilities are looking for demand growth and EV charging can provide that, or EVs as DER, which RMI and and you personally have been very involved in that thought leadership. Mm -hmm. There are opportunities there, but it requires active dialogue. It requires a lot of contact and a lot of context and a lot of sharing to figure out, okay, where are the goals aligned? Where are they not aligned? And where is there a value increase that can be shared along the chain? Okay. All right. Well, I think that's a fair answer. And we should note that it looks like uh, at long last, the PG&E rate case for putting in those charges is probably going to fly this time. Yeah, you know, I, I know the phrase is third time's a charm, but yeah. Yeah, third time there's still some some communications flying back and forth between parties and the, the PUC, and so it'll be interesting to see how it ends up, but it did look like that last set of, of guidance was positive and looking to be dispositive. Yeah, and I think it's also interesting the way that 
it kind of fell in between the other two IOUs in California, you know, where the SCE proposal was, we're not going to own any chargers, we're just going to provide make-ready locations. The SDG&E proposal, which was also successful, was we're going to own the chargers. And the PG&E proposal just looks like the settled proposal is going to fall in between. Right. Well, and as you've said in previous writings and discussions, the initial ask from PG&E was very, very large. And yeah. so bringing it back, and that point you've made on the investment in the make-ready and that infrastructure, one of the biggest costs in installing these fast chargers is whether it's trenching or upgrading panels or upgrading the ability to service that utility area. That's a key role for the utility to partner, whether they're doing it themselves or with a private party. And our view is obviously the private sector charging companies should be in that conversation, but the utility's ability to help with that Mm -hmm. will then actually benefit both parties, giving some predictability to the utility, some reliability and good customer service to the charging company. And there really is a great opportunity for symbiosis, but it requires a level of trust, a level of engagement, and in some cases, a level of rapidity that is unusual for this sector. Yeah, yeah, I agree. A lot to watch there in California. They're sort of trying all the different ways you could possibly do it, and I guess we'll find out some years down the line which proposals were judged to be the most effective. Right. Well, and California is the leader, but they're not the only one, right? New York is working hard, and all of the ZEV states are working on penetration. EV goes across 50 markets across the country. All of a sudden, Georgia popped up as a large EV state, in part because of the tax credit that had been there. Mm -hmm. Uh, Unfortunately, that tax credit went away, but it does show that impact of policy. If you look at where are non-ZEV states seeing high penetration, It's where either forward-leaning local policymakers have invested in the infrastructure or the policymakers have invested in the point of sale or other type of incentive. Or sometimes it's even the social benefits that are slightly different but very important. HOV access in a very traffic-heavy area or free parking access. I believe Hawaii has that beneficial parking that's been discussed a little bit. So there's all these different policy levers that are really critical to deploying all sorts of technologies. And we've seen it in other sectors, and transportation is now benefiting. And if you look at just that top issue, about a third of our emissions come from the transportation sector, and it's a lot harder to regulate those out. So what do you need? You need innovations both on technology and on business model. We've already seen battery costs come down, density increase. We're really at this key inflection point. Vision Ridge has also you know, done some investments in Proterra, which is the electric bus company. And so we're seeing that as a major interest for cities. And RMI has talked a lot about the ability of cities to innovate. And I think you know, the municipalities that are really taking advantage of electrification efforts and emissions reduction efforts, the fact that the batteries are cheaper, the charging can be quicker, and it can be a better service and a better car, whether it's your personal car or a better experience if you're a transit rider, those are really huge benefits to help move the system. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So one of the issues that we really tried to highlight in the report we published at RMI earlier this year, titled Electric Vehicles as Distributed Energy Resources, emphasized how important it is for utilities to offer tariffs that will encourage electric vehicle charging at the right times and places, given the character of generators and their loads on the grid. In places like San Diego, where they have negative grid power prices in the middle of the day because solar systems are cranking, it makes sense for the utility to offer low midday rates and get people to soak up all that cheap solar power instead of having to curtail it. And in, oh, let's say, Iowa, it would make sense for utility to offer the lowest EV charging rates when wind turbines are really cranking, which is often at night, and so on. 
So then there are other issues that would affect companies like EVgo, like demand charges that were never really intended to address networks of EV chargers, but which could impose serious costs on EVgo's network. So what kind of tariff design do you think would be best for utilities, for EV customers, and for charging networks like EVgo? It's a great question, and the demand charge aspect is at the front of mind for every charging provider because it can be this asymmetric impact of mm-hmm. you know what your predictability is on a kilowatt hour basis but if you have two cars come in to charge at the same time you can spike it and make the whole month uneconomic yeah i think part of this actually is a really interesting conversation that's been happening at elab at the summit right which is okay for customers for drivers in multifamily housing for drivers on the go on the highway what you really need is fast charging you have to be able to get on the go and if you don't have a garage the only way you're going to make an EV your primary vehicle is with ubiquitous, affordable, and accessible public fast charging. And that's part of a key part of EVgo's business model and why we think it's a great, you know, a great positive investment. Mm-hmm. The utilities, especially in that case where it's time of use and you know the, the SCE want to book ahead a day ahead, that's not always going to be convenient if you're on the go for long distances, but it could be if you're doing workplace or home. So one of the big takeaways I've had in a lot of conversations recently is there's sometimes a misalignment of what's good for the EV driver mm. and what's good for the utility. And it's going to change based on which kind of EV driver. And I think that's actually a really interesting conversation of how do you structure the rates to incent people to be using during those peak generation times, but how do you also have the utility have the partnership with the fast chargers to work together on batteries to flatten it out or you know, to make sure that on-demand capability is there because that's critical to mass penetration of EVs. Okay, so it sounds like maybe demand charges just need to go away and be replaced by something that's more appropriate. That'd be ideal, or in some cases, you've seen some instances of using batteries to buy down demand charge, but you can't buy it away completely. Uh Um, But again, if demand charges were never intended for a type of consumer like EV charging, it was intended more for large industrial or commercial consumers, so tiered rates might be better, or a demand charge that is defrayed or reduced or a different type of rate structure for EV charging entirely. I think this is a very live and dynamic debate that mm-hmm. will be different across the country. And I think part of it's going to depend on the load profiles and the demand profiles across these different utilities. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's fair. We like to ask the hard questions on this show, the ones that nobody really knows the answer to in order to stimulate our listeners thinking and maybe push the envelope a little bit. So let me ask you this one. One of the things I think we're going to try to figure out is where EV charging infrastructure really needs to go. And the conventional assumption has been that people will come home from their day's activities with a mostly depleted EV battery and then plug it into a level one or a level two charger at home, maybe in their garage to recharge overnight. But as we get more chargers installed in workplaces and shopping malls and the like, especially DC fast chargers, we may find that people are actually charging up quite a bit during the day And then separately from when and where you'd want people charging for the maximum benefit to the grid, we'd like to understand what the natural use patterns are for EV drivers so that chargers are where they need them and when they need them, hopefully when it's also good for the grid. So really, we have two analytical questions here. When is it good for the grid for people to be charging and not charging? And then separately, when do people need to charge and where are the vehicles at that time? And somehow we got to put these things together. So what are your thoughts on this? I realize it's a big, hairy question. So, you know, where are we going to need the chargers? Yeah, well, so the simplistic answer is everywhere, right? Mm. We're going to need them on the go on highways. We need them connecting regional corridors. We're going to need them in cities. We're going to need them 
exurban and in rural areas too. And both of those are often forgotten, unfortunately, and we need to be planning ahead, especially when you get these 200 and 300 mile range cars. That does change the dynamic for who can use them, but it also may change the economics of utilization at individual chargers. You know, part of it is this divergence that we alluded to in the previous question, which is home and workplace may be better for utilities because you know that they're going to be there. And if they're charging on an L2, they're charging over time and a utility could leverage that for DER or could meet out the charging based on when it's cheaper for them to even out various peaks. But for drivers, getting it on the go, if you're not at one of those points, as you said, if you're not just driving at home or if you have to drive a very long distance in a rural community and you need that 10 minute charge to get, call it 50, 60, 70% of your battery, you're not going to want to be waiting around or making an appointment of when is it good or convenient for the utility, but you're still going to be price sensitive and can't afford to have that massive volatility. One of the mm-hmm. biggest advantages of EVs over conventional ICE cars is you don't have the oil price volatility. Electricity is relatively stable. So the last thing we want to do is have utilities pass on volatility to on-demand charging. So part of this is you know how do you break open the markets and how do you make it fair for different economic segments? And to me, that public fast charging dynamic and that on-demand dynamic is critical to the multifamily housing and that low and moderate income segments because they can't just say, okay, well, I'll just rely on charging at night at home and if the utility wants to trickle it out or pull it back, that's fine with me because they may not have a garage, they may not have a dedicated parking space. Right. Similarly, the world has changed and economic mobility means you may not be at the same job a year from now that you are today. Right. When I went to buy my most recent car, I wanted to buy an EV. I live in DC. I live in a multifamily housing, big apartment complex, Mm -hmm. and I was working at the Department of Energy. And so I knew if I was going to stay at the Department of Energy forever, workplace charging could take care of it. But I probably wasn't going to stay at the Department of Energy forever. And in my community, there were two chargers, one, an L2 charger over at the Holiday Inn, which is not going to help me. (laughs) And then another that the DOE paid for a couple of the blocks down the street, which would still need me to leave my car for a significant amount of time. That didn't work. Mm. So part of the EVgo business model is go into these cities, go into these metro areas and make public charging the unlocking mechanism for people like me, people that will be able to buy cars later, and especially as things get more affordable in these next generations of Leafs and other vehicles. And I think that's really critical. And then balancing it with what is the utility need to service all the varying loads. Flat and declining demand in a lot of service territories means some of them are just going to jump for joy at at additional demand. But if you're talking about highway build in particular, and especially as we ramp from 50 kilowatt to 150, and the goal for some of these is 350 kilowatts, if you're talking about putting four of those in, and all of a sudden you've got 1.4 megawatts where there was very little draw before, that's a big, scary proposition for the utility. It's a big, scary proposition for the EV charging provider that's looking at a possibly huge demand charge. Mm. And for the customer, they just want to know they can go plug in and have an easy interface and have it not cost them an arm and a leg. So that's a real big set of solutions that need to be found. And there's incentives for automakers, utilities, charging companies, policymakers, all to come together to work towards that solution. A great answer. All right. So everywhere then. Put them everywhere. That's Although the simple the, answer. You know, not to be not to undercut my own argument. Part of the risk that has also been discussed at Elab, which has been a really helpful framing, is beware of stranded assets, right? You don't want to overbuild. Right. And you don't want to overbuild on time too. Right now, part of the economics is about utilization. And until you get a higher penetration, a lot of these charging stations are really about insurance, making sure you can get home and have that charger. But as the penetration increases, that'll be really good for 
for the economics of public charging stations. But there is risks that you overbuild in some cases, and then all of a sudden you have these additional assets out there. Right. So on that point precisely, a lot of people, including the folks at the mobility team at RMI, are excited about the potential for fleets of autonomous electric vehicles offering services like Uber. And they see at least the possibility that in the future, they could eliminate the need to own a vehicle entirely for a lot of drivers. And so in that scenario, you would actually potentially have a lot of infrastructure getting built to provide EV charging all over the place just right around the time that people just stop owning vehicles. And now we just have fleets of autonomous vehicles, which can all go charge up at a depot outside of town, and you don't even need chargers in town anymore. So, um, Depending on we, the we size need, of your town. <laughs> right, yeah, okay. So what we really need to figure out is sort of a, a no-regret strategy, I suppose, of building charging infrastructure between where we are now and this sort of autonomous fleet's future. So uh, what do you think about that scenario? Are you bullish on it, or do you think that people are going to continue wanting to own vehicles for a long time to come? Well, I think first and foremost, not to sound too bullish on an investment strategy we've already decided about, but (laughs) we think that public fast charging actually is more future-proofed in a lot of those ways, because whether it's the depoting in city, out of city, or whether it's the fact that they're ubiquitous in a city, fast charging is critical for fleet vehicles, autonomous or otherwise. And if you're talking about the sharing economy or not, getting that vehicle in use is what drives the economics for the owner of that vehicle, whether Mm -hmm. it's personal or fleet, and having to take it out of use for four hours at a time for level two charging just means you're lighting money on fire as opposed to turning that over and public fast charging is that way to do it. Now, if it's in city or out of city, I think many fleets will be agnostic, but part of what you can do is drive the, uh, pun unintended, but drive those charging events towards times and locations that are then better for the system. Again, it's better for the grid, it's better for demand, or it's better for consumers, especially if you live in a world of blended, some self-driving fleets, some personal vehicles. I think a lot of this just opens up new questions. It's that thing of anybody that says they know the answer here and they know the future, they're definitely lying. So I don't have an answer for you, but I have a couple of key questions that this raises for me. If autonomous comes on board, we're already seeing a big shift amongst younger generations in cities in particular in not driving, not taking driver's license tests, because why would you, especially if Uber costs keep coming down? But that doesn't mean that vehicle sales won't still be high because breakage could be higher. It could be that the market for automakers changes instead of personal vehicles. You're still selling the same volume, but just over a different time Mm -hmm. horizon. But really part of this is, does that mean we need to transition to total cost of ownership as opposed to some other types of economic metrics? Should we be measuring vehicle miles traveled and be thinking about percentage that are in EVMT, electrical vehicles mile traveled? Do we need some kind of RPS equivalent for EVMT? There's a bunch of great questions there, including what happens to exurban growth? The hypothesis has always been as population increases around the world, not just the U.S., there'll be more and more and more cities. If we have autonomous electric vehicles and you can suddenly get productivity out of a one or two hour commute because that's your mobile office, Mm -hmm. do you want to live in these sustainable cities we've all been talking about or do you have more exurban growth and your commute includes your work time? I mean, there, there is a series of questions here that then change where you might need to install your infrastructure. It changes your growth projections. We still have the questions on the last mile traveled. What does this do to transit, mass transit? Does that mean that you know, buses are all autonomous as well? Or does it mean that sometimes you're right-sizing the bus routes and it's just a car or a minivan or a slightly larger minivan? There's all these questions. I guess a slightly larger minivan is just a van. Uh, <laughs> but there's all these questions that then come up. And I think that that relationship that people have with the cars 
it changes, but we don't know how. And yeah. so having the public fast charging gives you at least some insurance that that can be a useful application for mass transit, for individuals that do decide to keep their cars, for fleets that are on the go, especially if they're doing tons of of trips because you don't want to have the economics rely on you having to drive 20 minutes out of town to get to that charger. You want to have the economics be keep using that vehicle as much as possible. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you mentioned the mass transit and the buses because uh, something that really surprised me in a previous podcast, an interview we did with Cece Huang about China, was that in China they have these high uh, voltage induction chargers and the city buses can actually get a blast of high voltage charge for the 15 seconds that it's sitting at a bus stop from an overhead induction charger, which will give it enough juice to get to the next bus stop. So it doesn't even need to have these long delays while it sits and recharges. What do you think about that idea as something that could be applied in the U.S.? So I'm not tremendously familiar with that, so I I don't want to speak out of turn about it, but I think it does raise the theme of Innovation is unpredictable, innovation is necessary, and innovation is inevitable. And so there will always be changes, right? One of the things that constantly comes up in the EV charging conversation is, what about wireless, right? Right. And right now, one of the biggest issues with wireless is you can't get the power levels that high. But that doesn't mean that won't get solved eventually. And it doesn't mean that it's not beneficial, but you can use wireless charging in existing infrastructure that you build out. We talk a lot about future proofing, and it's more like future resisting, right? Or rather, future enabling is a better term for that. Because it's not that you will ever be able to anticipate every innovation. It's how do you make sure that you maximize what you have today, what looks possible near term, and that you're that is adaptable long term. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something that no one has the answers on, but we can all work together as an advanced energy community to be trying to figure out how to solve these problems and, and trying to support solutions that are then helpful. The adversarial concept of there's an incumbent that we have to displace is often better in theory than in practice. Hmm. And I think we've, we've seen that a lot in utilities and what New York is doing with the reforming energy vision is really, I think, innovative in, in and of itself of just trying to partner and figure out, you know, we're not trying to kill the utility, we're trying to modernize the utility, and that's a push-pull together. Yeah. Vehicles are the same way. Tesla has done phenomenal things disrupting the EV and the broader automotive community. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that they will then take over everything. They're going to have a large percentage of the, the segment. But traditional automakers can decide, okay, do I fight them? Do I co-op? Do I work with them? What does that mean for our relationship with charging providers? What does it mean for our relationship with utilities? So this dynamic of a rising tide can lift a lot of boats here. And being able to adapt and being flexible is going to be far more valuable than being rigid. Yeah, and you know, on that point, you know, I think we've already seen that evolution happening with the automakers where, you know, in the 70s and the 80s and Agreed. the 90s, they did resist the electric vehicle transformation. Um, they only complied with it to the extent that they had to to meet California's requirements so they could continue selling gasoline-powered vehicles in California. And and now, you know, all the big manufacturers are turning out EVs, and some of them are really quite impressive, high-performance vehicles. That's actually, Chris, that's a phenomenal point. Both of those points are phenomenal, but that last one in particular. Part of what makes Tesla sell vehicles is that they designed a really awesome car. And EVs have inherent advantages over conventional cars. Mm -hmm. Better torque means better acceleration, right? The fact that you can go longer without maintenance is a huge boon to people that hate going to auto maintenance departments. Totally. I mean, it's a much more enjoyable drive in a lot of ways. And once the automakers have finally started moving beyond compliance vehicles, then you can start designing and marketing better cars to help with that mass penetration. Yeah. I think 
Zev has been an invaluable tool and will continue to be an invaluable tool, especially as that policy dynamic is changing on the national level. In addition to that being a great pull, the fact that we're having design and better conversations and the automakers are leading, Tesla and the conventional automakers are leading new design and rollout of cars, you can hopefully accelerate that five-year product cycle, but regardless, you can get more vehicles to market. That really changes the game too. Yeah, yeah, it does. Well, this has been a fascinating chat. Jonathan, thanks a lot for taking the time to be on the show. Thanks, Chris, for having me. I really appreciate it. You know, Vision Ridge is, is a great company, and we're really excited to be working with innovators and working in ways that shows the rest of the world that these are actually not just impact-oriented, they're financially profitable, and, mm-hmm. and that's a, a great mission for all of us to show that you can make money while helping solve climate. Indeed it is. All right. Thanks very much. Thanks, Chris. I hope you enjoyed this special free bonus episode of the Energy Transition Show, brought to you in collaboration with Rocky Mountain Institute, or RMI, a clean energy think-and-do tank based in Colorado. For more information about RMI's eLab and to learn how to get involved in its various events, see the link in the show notes. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.